0: He's over there. Anyway, all right, so let's pray. And uh, these are our texts. Once again, Father, we come to you because we know that that our sufficiency, our um, strength is in you. I was thinking about this past week that trials come to strengthen our faith, but also to show us our own inability. Um, It's interesting how. We need to see that we're weak in order to be strong. How mm. the way up is down, mm. and, uh, and yet it, it seems so contradictory to the way we normally think the way things are done in this world where power and strength and, and the energy that comes from hating somebody or anger, uh, or, or you know, at it like one of the bumper stickers I saw is, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Um, but that's the way of the world, and we are surrounded by that. But your word says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And he may lift you up in due time. And it also says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. And so we acknowledge our weakness this morning. Um, we read your word, and we're just, like we're just saying, kind of half-joking, but it's, it's true that your word is is so full of riches that we just can't, fathom the depths of it. And every time we can get in, we think we know a text and suddenly some fresh insight or, or something that we forgot a long time ago or two two data points that we didn't really connect or suddenly connected. And we thank you for your your work through your Holy Spirit to bring us along in our inadequacies uh, to understand better who you are in this grand plan of salvation, of which we are tiny, but uh, um, important to you part of and we thank you for this this little church for our role help us to be faithful uh, in in the years ahead whatever time you have for us help us to to recognize the pointers from you when we need to change direction uh even when it's uncomfortable hmm. and, uh, and and so help us to do that we, we remain <clears throat> open to you because we recognize that the adequacy is not in us but in, the power is in you to change change lives Open your word to us this morning again, in Jesus' name.
1: Amen.
0: I was going to tell you a story about David, but we'll we'll save that for later. Good morning. All right. So, uh, John chapter 11. This is the last section. And I've got one more set of notes here for Dave. you you can see the title here is unbelief on trial okay i uh, i kind of as i was trying to think about what to title this section of john this is the latter part of john 11 right after the raising of lazarus right so this is you remember I, i said to you chapter 11 is is I don't know. I haven't counted up, but it's it's certainly one of the biggest chapters in John. And there's this sort of ramp up period. There's all of this drama, you might say, right? That that's happening with his disciples, and the messenger comes, and Jesus waits all these extra days, you know, and finally shows up down there. And the disciples are reluctant to go. And don't you remember they wanted to kill you? And 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 then they get there, and Martha has her, you know time with Jesus, and Mary has hers, and the Jews are critical, and everybody the mood is depressed, and he just casually raises Lazarus, prays to the Father, thanks him, right, and raises (laughs) Lazarus, and almost half turns to go as he's saying, loosen, and let go. And uh, and so that's sort of this ramp-up period. It's like like a mountain, right? You have all this build-up, 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 build-up and the pinnacle itself, the actual raising ladder, is pretty small, right? just a couple, handful of verses, and then and then you have this down slope, the other side. What happens after that? And that's what the rest of this this uh, text is, eleven forty five through fifty seven. And as I was struggling with a title for that, it suddenly struck me because what I've been impressed with, and I'm going to see that here in the notes in a minute. What I've been impressed with is that. This is the trial. This is the real trial of Jesus. Okay, this is when they, when they really f- officially decide that that it we need to really get serious about stopping this man and and executing him. Okay, um, and so what we see after his arrest in the garden and the betrayal by Judas and arrest in the garden. And where he's, And this is in chapter 18 where John covers this. John is the only one that tells us that Jesus first went to see Annas before he went to see Caiaphas. Um, and, and, and they dragged him to Annas first and, and then to Caiaphas. And you know, when you put all the Gospels together, he, he bounced around a lot. He went to Pilate and went back to Herod and back to Pilate again, right? And, and, and all of that. John doesn't cover all of that. Uh, when we get there, we'll take a look at that timeline um, in, in total thanks to John's book, which is uh, One Perfect Life, right? John MacArthur, which I recommend uh, if you haven't gotten it already. But um, the point is that that appearance, I, I i have started to call them appearances for lack of a better term. You can call it trial. In a way, it is kind of a trial where he's questioned by Annas personally, right? And, and then Caiaphas and then Herod, and, well, Pilate and then Herod and back to Pilate again. Uh, You can call those, there's commonly called the trials of Jesus. But this is the real trial here. What happens here is really the trial because they, even though he's not there, which is a violation, right? Of not only our laws, but theirs as well and the vault and everything that's decent. Um, But but they go ahead and they act like jury Judge and executioner, they're not really carrying the sentence out, but they go ahead and, and 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 pass sentence on him here at this council that is convened in the last part of chapter eleven. And uh, John is really the only one that tells us about this, uh, but it's important because this sets the context for what's coming next in chapter twelve, with with the triumphal. It's called popular triumphal entry. I like call it presentation of the king. Like of John MacArthur's title for that, in that book, um, One word of Life. Anyway, um, that's, a, that's a lot of wordiness. all this to say that, that uh, I was trying to, I, I almost titled this, Jesus on Trial. But I got to thinking, no, no, no. What's the main word for this chapter? The theme, belief, right? not only belief, but also non-belief, right? That sort of, you might say, that decision, okay, now you're faced with this irrefutable evidence about this man. What are you going to do about it? That's the heart of this chapter. And so as I was thinking about it, this title struck me. Actually, this is unbelief on trial. Because even though Jesus is the one who's on trial, it's really the Sanhedrin on mm-hmm. trial you think about it okay because this man has laid down three years of not only miracles but teaching the Word of God and just and, 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 and miracles in a way that didn't draw attention so much to himself I mean he just didn't do cool things like pulling the rabbit out of the hat or some some kind of thing that looks impossible um, but 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 things that reverse the curse right that, that you would expect God to do. A saving God to do uh, when He, if He would come and, and verify His His authenticity, uh, His origins from heaven <clears throat> with miracles. Okay? So they are faced with all this evidence, and the conclusion that they come to, the crime that they commit, is in the face of all of this evidence. They say, "No, we will not have this man to reign over us. We are more concerned." with our power base and protecting our traditions and our system and really the whole corrupt systems we're going to see here in a minute, that was benefiting them. And so the shepherds of Israel who were supposed to protect the flock from the greatest threats prove once again how they are the greatest threat by crucifying their own messiah. Okay, so that's why I titled this "Unbelief on Trial" because I think it fits well with the whole theme of this this entire chapter. Okay, so let's let's read our notes here together. And I do have one more spare copy. If somebody else comes in, uh, we may. Uh, Bruce usually comes. Uh, might be a little late, but um, it's right here. And if we need to make some more copies, <coughs> maybe Dad or somebody can go okay, to. All right. Don't miss this significant verse on the top of your notes. There, okay, everybody with me? We're, we're in our notes now. Uh, John 12:37. Though he had done so many signs before them, what? This does not believe in him. Okay, John is going to effectively conclude the public ministry of John in this. Oh, sorry, public ministry of Jesus is presented by John. At the tail end of chapter twelve, and he's got sort of this epilogue, this little statement, and that's that comes out of that, and that's essentially what he's going to say. Um, can you you know slap your head, mind explode, you know, um, despite all of these miracles, they still don't believe in. Okay, so I thought it'd be good at this point since this is the last public miracle that John recorded. John recorded seven signs. Jesus did many more than that, right? The gospels, the other gospels tell us he did many more. John himself acknowledges that. I quote that that tail end of chapter 20 there, where he says, yeah, Jesus did many other things too, but these are recorded, you know, that you may believe. Okay, so I thought, well, you know, we I, I like to do this. Like we have to periodically put the little table in there to kind of show us where we are in the seven ams and all that. Okay, so there's seven signs in John's gospel, and I I uh, talk about this first here, okay? <clears throat> So John selects seven signs ie miracles that Jesus did which are designed to confirm his repeated assertion that he is the Messiah the prophet spoken of by Moses in Deuteronomy 1815 remember that's um, that was a very special title or very special office to the Jews remember way back at the beginning of this gospel um, that when John the Baptist, because uh, right after the right after the prologue where John talks about the you know, the beginning was the word words with God and all that, he starts with John the Baptist, the man came preaching, the wilderness, right? He he kind of says, okay, he sets the stage with John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist had garnered so much attention, and everybody just really popularly he everybody was like man this is a man of God this is one of the prophets he's you know keep in mind when was the last time they had had a, an Old Testament style prophet 400 years ago okay so people were very excited they were convinced this guy John the Baptist was one of those Old Testament prophets he's coming in the spirit of Elijah and, and all that and there's all this talk about who is he and what is his purpose and so remember the leaders or de- a delegation actually from these from the Jews from these leaders were sent to John, and they said, who are you, right? And one of the things they asked him was, are you the prophet? Okay, and that's what they're referring to is that is that text there. Uh, we read that and, um, and some, some of the Bibles, you know, it capitalizes P, are you the prophet, capital P, and that's that's correct. The translators are correct because that is a special title, that's a, that's a proper noun in the minds of the Jews. Okay, so that so that they looked on this individual as a fulfillment of that prophecy, where Moses said, "One is going to come after me, whom you will listen to. Listen to him, right?" And and uh, and, and uh, so anyway, that's why I put that reference in there. Um, so John has been laying out the case that Jesus is the Messiah, that prophet spoken of by Moses in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, and the heavenly witness whose testimony is greater abraham jacob moses or john the baptist and all of those are presented to john right uh, all of those are presented in john abraham is presented in chapter eight uh, in, in the jacob is is brought up in the confrontation with the woman at the well she says do you think you're greater than our father jacob well i'm the messiah yes okay moses also chapter five that's chapter five moses bears witness and john the baptist himself more witness at the end of chapter three that Jesus is the heavenly witness. This he is I'm only the earthly witness. He's the heavenly witness. I must decrease. He must increase. Okay, hear him. Stop hanging around me, guys. Go. I've been pointing that way. Go. You know, God, go over there. He's greater than I am. Okay. So John is laying out this this this. Case and, and, and or telling us this. And the miracles, now watch this, the miracles verify this. Miracles verify this. They're not there to engender belief. And that's what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to make. While these signs could be thought to engender belief in Jesus, John is careful to point out that the miracles by themselves were insufficient to save even the majority of those who witnessed them. Think about that. Where's Where's probably the clearest place in John where we see that in action? A whole bunch of people witnessed a miracle. They were all excited about it, but then they get offended and leave.
1: Nope.
0: John chapter six. Oh yeah, yeah. Being the five thousand, yes. the the one the one sign that is recorded in all four gospels, the only one besides his resurrection, should say public sign, right? It's the only public sign that is um, recorded in all four gospels, and it's so it's so significant because it was the it was the pinnacle of his popularity, and after that, the next day they come back and they're excited again, and they compare that to getting man in the wilderness, and Moses didn't, Moses didn't feed just you know, 20,000 people, he fed the whole nation. Well, you going to be Jesus. And Jesus starts saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, and they get offended. And John 6, 63, doesn't say his enemies. It says many of his disciples, his friends, people who had followed him, followed him no longer. They were offended, and they left. Okay? Despite having seen not just that one, but many other miracles that he did. I guarantee you that crowd that size 20,000, probably a number of them had been personally healed by Jesus or had had their son or daughter or mother or father-in-law or whatever, a friend, you know, they'd seen him. So John is careful to help us understand that miracles by themselves don't create saving belief. Very important to understand that because... You know, you'd think today, and, and we have we do have people who claim to have a healing ministries. And um, and again, we're not saying that God doesn't heal, okay? People like to go to that extreme. Well, you say God doesn't heal. No, no, Of course God can heal. We know that. God is God. He can do anything He wants. The question is not, can He heal? The question is, He healing? And not just healing. Not just healing. So we're not saying God isn't healing today. What we're saying is healing on demand. Healing on demand. Having a gift of healing that at any time, in any circumstances, you can draw on that power and heal anything on the spot without, you know, long drawn out prayers oh, the Lord, you know, without, you know, doctors did this treatment and and it cleared up. And, you know, yes, we believe that the Lord can, you know, can heal straight up, but he uses the ordinary means today. And there are many times in which our prayers for healing uh, are answered with a no. And the healing that we are praying for doesn't happen. Anyway, I digress. That's a whole other topic. Okay, but John's point is, and that's what I'm trying to say here, is that um, these signs could be thought. You might think that it would in, that they would engender belief in Jesus. That they, all these people who got fed, there would just, you know, come the next day after they got fed and say, "Oh, these are some strange words. I don't really understand that." But you know what he what well, he did yesterday proves that he is from God. So I'm gonna stick around and see if maybe I might understand this a little better, right? No, they're gone. gone. On the other hand, the miracles are not unimportant either. Back to our notes. As John states near the end of his gospel, and this is right at the end of chapter 20. Uh, Verses 30 and 31 says now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Not even belief in the miracles or even the power behind the miracles, but the belief in the person. Miracles were there. Not to wow the crowd, mm-hmm. not to bring in the money, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and buy, since you can buy an even bigger corporate jet to fly around and do God's work around the world, like some of the false teachers today are doing. But um, Jesus didn't do any of that. It was only to confirm that what he was saying was directly from the Father. It was from God. And notice it says in the presence of his disciples, too, right? Mm-hmm. Primarily to convince them. And, okay. and, and also, and also us, right? John John talks about this in his epistle, too. When you read the opening chapter of, of 1 John, he says, Yeah, we saw these things, and I'm telling you what we saw. So we have fellowship with one another, right? And the fellowship we have is in God's Son. And so and so he's like, Yeah, we tell, I tell you these things, we're convinced of it. We saw it, and I'm telling you, so that we can together have fellowship. So the miracles are for us too, in that sense. Good to see you, Bruce. Margie, good to see you guys. Welcome. Good to see you. Hey. Morning.
1: Sorry for interrupting. No, you're fine. You're never an interruption.
0: Good to see you.
1: (laughs) thank you. Those of
0: us who are who are hearing the audio recording later we just had a rock star come in. I mean I'm sorry, Rocky. He's just called Bruce Woodman, our one of our ministry partners, a dearly loved brother and friend friend many years. And he's coming to speak to us this morning. I look forward to that. It oh,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. is dear wife yeah, Margie's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah.
0: um, let me give you that. You want to? Do we get the money? Yeah. I guess. No, no, problem. no, problem. <laughs> Also, you know, on, the,
1: on the miracles, I think, yeah. I think, another yeah. purpose is to create a hunger for what's happening. I mean, it's, it's almost like us when we read the Bible, we read something, and it creates a hunger in us to even search that out more. Right. right. So, I, so I think some of these miracles were done to, in the presence of people who create a hunger. To, to see, to understand. Because, you know, the more they seem, some of them would even come back and, and say, what did, what did that mean? Especially when it's talking about... Uh, what the uh, they come back and say? What did that mean? What do you mean by saying that? You mm-hmm. know,
0: the creates are hungry, right? Right. It should have, yeah. If and, and I think really this is this is the point of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit, because remember Jesus in the very next chapter says in chapter seven, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. But the problem is that dead people don't thirst; mm-hmm. they don't, they're not hungry, mm-hmm. and so it, unless the Holy Spirit does His job. To, to create birth, the new birth in a, in a life, you're not hungry, you're not thirsty. But the point is, the point that we're trying to make here, and I think this is what John is trying to, to say, as he presents these seven miracles, which are, are listed on your first page of your notes there, uh, is, is that the miracles themselves don't create that belief. It has to be something more there. The Holy Spirit has to be working. And the Word of God... God uses his word, right? And he uses, it takes the Holy Spirit, takes that and creates that's why that thirst. He's going I promise that when
1: he leaves, he's going to leave us, leave us to capsule the Holy Spirit. Because he knew he that he needed that. We needed that for us right. to remember from the
0: end of fellowship and we that. correction. That's right. that's right. We can't convince anyone of the truth of the gospel. In and of ourselves. Our our oh, yeah. best arguments on our best day doesn't do it. If no. these miracles didn't do it, our mm-hmm. best arguments won't do it either. Uh you may convince somebody for a while, but eventually they you know, they the, the truth of that will be seen in, in the fact that they do.
1: that was a conclusion given by Abraham to the rich man who required vessels that he's do it. Four
0: mm-hmm. miracles and warn his brothers or something. He says, if someone rises from the dead, yeah, right, right. It's a good point. Did you hear that uh, from from Dad? Uh, remember the remember the the story of, of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man says, You know, no, look, you know, if, 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 send somebody, tell oh, my brothers, right.' And, and Abraham says even if somebody rises from the dead, you know, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them.'" Word even if God. somebody rises from the dead right in their face you won't believe it, right if you're not going to believe the scriptures you have you're not going to believe somebody's resurrected which by the way it's really popular today to, to have all these so-called ministries of people who have had near-death experiences you've seen that yes, 90 minutes in heaven and all the rest of it some of it's really obviously just a total part some of it um, one guy in particular I don't know but uh, you know, his story is, seems to be really authentic. He's he's a good, solid, seems to be a good, solid pastor, not drawing a lot of attention to himself. Maybe he did see kind of what he said, what he saw, says he saw. He didn't see anything that contradicts Scripture. By the way, if these if these visions contradict Scripture, forget it. Okay? It's, it's not firsthand testimony that trumps Scripture. Right? But anyway, the point is, <clears throat> Paul did see the third heaven he was very reluctant to talk about it. He said, I can't even tell you what was said. It's not permitted. <laughs> so it makes you wonder about so many of these stories. Be that as it may, those stories don't create faith in the gospel. Right? Only the Holy Spirit can do that through his work. Through his death. Let's keep reading. In our notes. The raising of Lazarus was Jesus' pu- greatest public sign, as we pointed out in the prior notes. Nevertheless, it is important to note that these signs did not in themselves save people, but in many cases actually confirmed their unbelief. In some cases, it would confirm belief in somebody, but in other cases, the same miracle confirmed unbelief. And it, it actually made the heart harder, drove the nail in the coffin even deeper. No greater example of that than who? Who was with the Lord all these with years? Judas. Judas. He saw all this. And not only did he see miracles like we pointed out the other day in Bible study, but he was. He did them. He performed them. Because he, the, he wasn't the one disciple that couldn't do the miracles. So that when Jesus is sitting around years later in the upper room and says, one of you is going to betray me, all the heads go, whoop, and look at Judas. Right? I don't know why I look at David <laughs> and look at Judas, right? Okay, they didn't get they, they were like, Lord, is it me? Is it me? Right? But Judas didn't stick out because he couldn't perform. Jesus did miracles too, but again, the point is the supernatural miracles didn't create belief in him, and same with with other saving belief. Okay, um, so nevertheless, it is important to note that these signs. Did not in themselves save people, but in many cases actually confirmed their unbelief. This illustrates clearly that the Holy Spirit in obedience to the will of the Father, don't miss that, right? All whom, the chapter 6, all whom the Father has given me, what? Will come to me. I sure will. Can't, can't weasel out of those words, they're very clear. Must do his, so the Holy Spirit in obedience to the will of the Father must do his work in hearts to bring regeneration and enduring faith. No amount of miracles, no matter how glorious and spectacular, will lead to repentance of sin and faith in Jesus, if not also accompanied by the word of God and the Holy Spirit. Here's a summary of the seven signs John has recorded, and you can see that there. Number one is changing water to wine, that's in chapter 2, and there's just a quote there. Remember, verse 11 tells us that's the first sign he did, Okay, changing the water to wine. Number two is healing of the nobleman's son, and that's in chapter four. And John tells us that's the second sign that Jesus did. Third is the healing of the paralytic man in chapter five, performed in the Sabbath on the Sabbath in such a way that he told the man to violate the Sabbath traditions. Okay, we saw that, right? Carrying carrying his campsite. It wasn't a little tiny roll, it was a whole campsite. The man had been there 38 years. He accumulated some things. Okay? Number four, number four is, the, is the feeding of the 5,000, what we just talked about in chapter six. This is the only sign that appears in all four Gospels, and it's probably the pinnacle of Jesus' public popularity. <clears throat> after that, his popularity began to decline. Uh, chapter five, uh, right after that, actually, literally that night, Jesus walks on the water. That's recorded in, I think, three of the other Gospels, remember, or two of the other Gospels, or three total. And that's also in chapter six. Uh, then there's the healing of the man born blind in chapter 9, which we've talked at length about. Again, that was also done, part of the pun, to poke his eye in the Sabbath tradition. Poke his finger in the eye of the Sabbath tradition. Okay? Um, by creating clay, using clay, that was a no-no. Did you do that? Perform the Sabbath in such a way that Jesus violated their Sabbath traditions. He had no trouble doing that. He obeyed the word of God, but he didn't follow their traditions. Created a conundrum. All right. Then number seven, of course, the one we just finished in chapter 11, and it's the raising of Lazarus. And that's the greatest, I'm arguing, is the greatest public miracle that he performed. Mm-hmm. Right. The, greatest, the greatest sign ever was a private one. That's his own resurrection. That He didn't walk out of the tomb and go back to the temple and say, aha, you lost, right? He, mm-hmm. It was only his believers that got to see that. So the greatest public miracle that he did is raising Lazarus. And John really especially stresses that point uh, as opposed to the other Gospels and and links that then with all of the excitement and enthusiasm in welcoming him into Jerusalem uh, some weeks later at Passover uh, in what we call the triumphal entry. And that explains the excitement Where where these people come from. That's why. Alright, so we've we've already seen the chief priests, and uh, I don't think we've seen Caiaphas named up to this point, but we are about to be introduced to him. So I thought I'd put a little section in our notes here, some background for us to cover before we get into the text itself uh, on who these chief priests and the. You notice how I put that subtitle there, right? Who are the chief priests and the high priests? priests okay yeah. that's a little shortcut way we use in software sometimes when you're lazy and you don't want if you have a sum of one you know and you, you could have more than one you don't have to have it. anyway it's a way of expressing some some uncertainty as to the the number okay uh, a little play on, on the words there the reason I did that um, well let's get in let me read this and then, and then we can explain that the reason I titled this way in this final section of chapter 11, we are brought into the official trial of Jesus. The hearings held on the night before Passover and Jesus' crucifixion were not the real trials, despite popularly being called the trials of Jesus, because the, the final verdict to put him to death was carried out um, in response to his raising of Lazarus. Okay. Here we are introduced to Caiaphas, whom Jesus says—I'm sorry, whom John says—was the high priest that year. And this is also confirmed in in Matthew twenty-six and Luke three. Caiaphas stands out as essentially the point of the spear in the effort to silence and eventually kill Jesus. Yet there are also a number of chief priests (plural) who are also found throughout John's gospel beginning in chapter 7. If you go back and you look for the chief priests, you find them starting to show up at chapter 7 in John's gospel. What is the difference between the plurality of chief priests and the singular high priest? Where do the other priests who are not part of this group come from? Okay, uh, Why does John appear to name two high priests sometimes, yet refer only to Caiaphas as the high priest. That's why I put that little S in there. Sometimes it seems to be one high priest, and then but then he refers to another guy who is not the first guy who he says is high priest as the high priest. Well, wait a minute. Is it one high priest or we have two? Okay. That's in chapter 18. All right. Well, John is John is is very careful to help us understand that. Um, but before we uh, we do that, there's some historical context here which we need to know. Okay, so let's let's continue in our notes. The origin of this priesthood begins with the tribe descendants of Levi in Numbers 3, 12 through 13. They were the they were the only tribe where the priests were derived. Aaron, who is a descendant of Levi, was consecrated by God as the high priest in Exodus 29, seven through nine. Only he and his descendants could be high priests and chief priests. It was their responsibility to serve in rotational courses in the holy place and offer sacrifices, right? Especially when eventually the temple comes along, first under Solomon and then later under Zerubbabel and expanded under Herod. Uh, There was a lot of sacrifices, way more than one person could do, right? So this whole collection of chief priests are supposed to be descendants of Aaron and then have that daily responsibility in the tabernacle and then later the temple, expanding and growing uh, responsibility of offering these sacrifices over and over again, especially in times of Passover, where you would have thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices happening in a single day. Think about that. It's a huge volume. You need a lot of people to do that. And so... The people to do that were <clears throat> part of this high priest or chief priest. Okay. Best I, best I understand it. Okay. And if I'm wrong, come up later. All right. Um, but, the, but, um, let's continue reading here. So he and only he and his descendants could be the high priest and chief priest. It was their responsibility mm-hmm. serving rotational courses. That's what they call them in the holy place and offer sacrifices. The high priest was the only one in turn who could enter the holy of holies once a day on once a year. Once a year rather sorry on Day of Atonement. In Hebrew that's called Yom Kippur. Maybe you've seen that on your calendar. It says Yom Kippur. We still even today have that on our calendars. Day of Atonement. (coughs) By the way I used to Back when I was starting to learn, kind of connecting the dots here, you know, on, on Jesus' fulfillment of these things, I thought, oh, day of Atonement must have been the day he died. It's not. So it's interesting. You know, what does what the Day of Atonement foreshadow? throw that out. He died at Passover. Day of Atonement is a different time of the year. So the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement. Okay. The difference in the text of scripture is one of plurality. There are many chief priests, of which the high priest is one, but only one high priest at any given time. That's scripturally speaking. Only supposed to be one man in that office of high priest. By the time Jesus and the disciples were living, however, the chief priests appear to have evolved into a political party of sorts that served partly at the pleasure of the Romans. The reason I say appear up, up here, here is as I was reading about this um, there's there's some shades of difference out there in the, and you can do the homework too I mean you go out to Google like I do right and you can go out there and plug in new cheap and you'll see some differences and there's there's the, the main course of what what you'll find people largely agree but there's some there's some shadowy differences. And I got to thinking about, well, why aren't they, you know, really definitive on who these guys were exactly. And one of the, one of the, one of the ancient descriptions from, from the older historians said something that clued me in on that. It was they referred to them as the house of whispers.
1: Uh (laughs)
0: And I got to thinking about that. These are guys who don't really want what they're doing to be known, even in the day in which they live, right? So they didn't keep a lot of careful records of all of their meeting minutes and all that kind of stuff. They're kind of in the shadows, whispering, whispering, whispering their real plans, right? And so it would make sense that thousands of years later, as we look back and try to understand and turn the light on, that there'd be a lot of shadows there, right? Yeah, secret society, right? Yeah. So just keep that in mind if you do your own homework on this. Yeah, kind of like a secret society, kind of like a mafia is what I'm thinking, yeah. almost like a Jewish mafia, mm-hmm. really. Uh, Dad has said that before, and I think it's a good description. So by the time the Jesus' and disciples were living, however, the chief priests appeared to have evolved into a political party of sorts that served partly at the pleasure of the Romans. They were prominent members of the Sanhedrin. The ruling council of the jews and the high with the high priest serving as the president of the sanhedrin bringing the total number on the sanhedrin to 71. okay so sanhedrin is you know kind of like today we have a senate of 100 right and there's a if there's a tie uh who is it that comes and breaks that tie vice president vice president here's aaron he gave us our (laughs) civics lesson (laughs) So kind of a similar thing, uh, except the high priest was a member of the San. He was like 71, 71, you know, kind of. All right. No one, first, Okay. It is also apparent from clues in John's gospel that the high priest had become essentially, now watch this, an office shared by two men, Annas and Caiaphas. This can seem like a contradiction if the reader is thinking of the high priest in terms of the one man role that the Old Testament lays out. But John is careful to give us enough detail in chapter 18 verses 13 through 24. Okay, And you can go read that on your own time. He gives a lot of detail there. You just <laughs> read it carefully and you'll, you'll help see how he lays it out. And he does that to help us untangle the knot. What John doesn't tell us is the historical reason for this shared office scenario. It seems that because of his corruption, Annas had been removed by the Romans from the role of high priest and replaced with Caiaphas. Okay? So that's why I say earlier that the high priest served partly the pleasure of the Romans. The Romans couldn't just choose anyone they wanted to put in there. The Jews would not have that. Okay, So it's a kind of a give and take. But the Romans, in the case of Annas, uh, took him out. I mean, he was he was that bad that the Romans got involved and apparently took him out of that office and replaced him with Caiaphas. Okay. But the Jews did not fully recognize this intrusion by Rome. And also, because Annas's daughter was Caiaphas's wife, Annas still pulled the strings of the high priest from the shadows. Okay. It's like a godfather in the back room there. What's that? We do. Sure do. Yeah, it's nothing new, is it? In our text, we are going to see Caiaphas in his high priestly role as president of the Sanhedrin, exercise his power to sway the divided council in favor of arresting and killing Jesus. We should also see Annas standing over his shoulder, giving his passive approval. Right? Annas is not mentioned in chapter 11. It didn't come up until 18. But they guarantee you, Annas is there. Or less. Well, maybe even whispering in Caiaphas's ear to stand up and sway this divided council. Right? So we're gonna see that in the text. What I'm saying is that in our what John is, is careful to lay out to us is that it wasn't as if all the Jewish leaders with one unified voice said, Let's kill Jesus. Okay, there's we're gonna see this here in our text. There's some argumentation back and forth. There's, there's some that are swayed more in favor of him than against him. And if it's, it's really ultimately Caiaphas who stands up and, and sweeps the majority of the Sanhedrin uh, in favor of killing Jesus, okay? That final trial that they have is swayed really by Caiaphas. Why? Because he was the main representative of this chief priest who had a whole gig going. They were ripping people off and they were making some serious coin. Okay? And they were threatened. He threatened that system. Not only had he cleansed the temple one time, he was about to do it again. <laughs> mm-hmm. And when he did it, people applauded. Okay? They were happy because. Caiaphas and his his guys, his Gross. buddies, the cool kids, okay, who were in charge of this whole thing, were unpopular people.
1: Well, they knew that. People knew that. They were living off they didn't do Can't do
0: anything about it. They didn't have the, the to change it. And Rome didn't care so long as it didn't intrude on Rome's mm-hmm. interests, right? Apparently, Anna stepped over the line at some point. I don't know what that was. It was enough to have Rome remove him. All right, so the Sadducees, who are they? And uh, we're just about out of time here, but let's finish this right up in our notes, okay? The Sadducees, who are not mentioned by John, but are found in in the other three Gospels and in Acts, were essentially another name for this group of influential chief priests. You can see that in Acts 5.17. Acts 5.17 makes that very clear, okay? From this clue, we learn several characteristics about this group. I think point one: they did not believe in several core doctrines that the Pharisees did, namely the resurrection. Right? They taught there is no resurrection. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that. Again, references you can look that up in your own time. The spiritual—they uh, also didn't believe in spiritual realities. They didn't believe in the whole spiritual realm. Okay, they did not believe in 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 angels and demons or spirits of any kind. I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, people who say theology, your your doctrine doesn't matter, need to take another look. As a person thinks in their heart, so is he, right? So you got this corrupt, this group of corrupt influential descendants of Levi through Aaron, okay, who are running this whole uh, shadowy religious game that's effectively like a mafia ripping people off and extortion, you know, at every turn, just about. Uh, and 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 they're doing everything they can to pour more money into their own purses and gain more political power, and favor with Rome and, and all of that, right? Don't they know that there's a judgment coming? I mean, you're in the temple of God, and you have the Word of God sitting there in scrolls, and you hear it all the time read. Don't doesn't it say clearly that? Well, they don't believe it. They didn't believe in a resurrection, which means there's no judgment, no afterlife, right? No judgment. So it only makes sense for them to get as much as you can, even at the expense of other people. <laughs> kind of interesting. So, what
1: do they think that?
0: I don't know. Um, but it is interesting, too, that uh, what we're going to read in the next chapter is that this group, the chief priests, it only names them, want to kill Lazarus, too. Why? It was not just a proof that Jesus was from God, but he was also a proof that their doctrine of no resurrection was wrong. Living proof. Ouch. Okay, so point number two. Uh, they were more elitist and aristocratic than were the Pharisees. They tended to be more wealthy and have positions of political power. This fact can be seen in historical references to the bazaars of Annas. Uh, I think it's um, Josephus maybe that names it, names it that way or something like that um, <clears throat> that were held in the outer court of the temple. Annas and his family essentially ran a shopping mall in the temple, took a cut of all the sales, and looked the other way at the corruption of this system. When demand for sacrificial animals rose beyond the ability of poor worshipers to afford them. Not only that, but you remember it says in the um, gospel accounts, both in John and the other gospels, that uh, when, when Jesus cleansed the temple, he turned over the tables of the money changers, right? What were the money changers doing? Well, you weren't allowed to bring in Roman coinage, which had you know forbidden images on it that you wouldn't want to bring into the temple of God. So you had to exchange that for money that was accepted only in the temple area, you know? So you would do that, you know, it's like coming in and, and exchanging, you know, normally that money in the temple would be worthless outside the temple area, but, you know, for one of their dollars, you'd have to pay 10 Roman dollars, right? And that inflation, that exchange rate kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, so people were losing money, and then just coming to give their gifts to the Lord. Pretty corrupt system, really disgusting. When you start digging into it, it's even, even 2,000 years later, it stinks. Okay. Um, point number three: They were the majority of seats in on the Sanhedrin, while the Pharisees were more representative of the people and were therefore held a greater honor by them. Ah, now we know why when Caiaphas stands up, he has enough power to pull the Sanhedrin, the majority of the Sanhedrin, in favor to swing them in favor of crucifying Jesus. Okay. <clears throat> point four: The Sadducees controlled the temple while the Pharisees controlled the synagogues. We've already talked about that, remember, from, from chapter 9. that It was the Pharisees who said that if anyone declared themselves to be a disciple of Jesus, they would be kicked out of the synagogue. Right? Sadducees didn't have that domain, but the, the Pharisees did. Point number five, next point there, second from bottom. Sadducees were far more accommodating to Rome than the Pharisees and welcomed Hellenization, that is, the Influence of Greek philosophy and Greek culture. Right? The Jews, traditional Jews, Pharisees, that was very forbidden. They wanted to remain separate. Um, but you know, not all Jews think the same. Just like, you know, not all white people think the same or right? black people think the same, right? Um, and so some of the some of the you've heard you read about the uh, Hellenistic Jews, right? That, that come to Jesus where he points and. Now, so they were friendly with the Sadducees. Um, last point there, Jesus had more confrontations with the Pharisees than the Sadducees. In other words, we meet them more in the Gospels generally, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, because of Pharise- the Pharisees' value on the authority of oral tradition rather than God's word. However, when Jesus appears to be a threat to the religious and political power of both groups, they put aside their differences and united against them. So be today like the Republicans and Democrats uniting together around some common hatred of somebody. I'll let you figure that out. Um, So hopefully that's a little helpful background. And I'm sorry we didn't really get into the text, but that's I feel like that's important for us to know to kind of color in the background as we read the text and Mm -hmm. as we as we see unbelief on trial. Any part of chapter one. Any thoughts or comments as we wrap up? Pete, I'd like to add an addendum on this. When Christ changes water to
1: wine, he it have it the wedding in Cana. Cana was located in dry desert country. Grapes do best in dry country. They don't like the, the water to fall on grape leaves. And so they, they do much better with their irrigated. So this was, they had the best country for growing grapes, grapes and, and producing wine. So they, they they produced the best wine around there and Christ changed water. It was better than the best wine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that says a lot about him too, doesn't it, Yeah. yeah <laughs> detail. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Right. Bruce, would you close some prayer? Sure. Our Heavenly Father, we
1: thank you for your word. We thank you so much for your miracles, for heard about this morning. We thank you for the miracle of salvation which we have experienced. We pray your blessing upon each person here today. Thank you for your time in the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.